can't disentangle yourself from sin apart from Christ because you're dead without him. This is why rebirth is necessary to understanding the gospel. You cannot grasp it. Understand, you can't grasp the gospel. You can't grasp the Christ, though you profess it, if you're not changed by the Holy Spirit. You can't grasp it, though you read it, if you're not changed by the Holy Spirit. You can't grasp it, though you attend a church faithfully, if you're not changed by the Holy Spirit. You can't enjoy the glorious freedom found in Christ, the removal of the filth of sin from your body of flesh if you're not born again. You can't. You can't. It's impossible. So what's the command? Cry out to God. Cry out to God. Call for others to cry out to God. Call out for those who have left this assembly or other assemblies, other churches, and cry out that they would repent of their sins and believe the Christ, or that they would repent from their sin if they're truly Christians. Why? That's what the Bible says to do. So if you have your Bible with you, please open with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and again, when we look at the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John falls outside of the other three on its own for this particular reason. When we look at the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, known as the synoptic Gospels, all right? So they share a lot of information together, a lot of uh, the same stories about Jesus, slightly different angles. And then when we look at the book of John, really interesting, almost 92 to 93% unique from any of the material found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so one of the primary thrusts, the primary focus in the book of John is that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. So the theological term behind that, the hypostatic union, that God would descend, Father Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And understand, this is the important theological implication of of what He actually did there. Guess what Jesus got to skip out on? Sin. Inherited sin. And we'll talk a little bit about that later in the text. But look at the beauty of the deity of Jesus Christ in the book of John. So again, John chapter 1 uh, will be in verses 29 through 34. If you don't have your Bible with you, we'll also have that up on the screen. Verses 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Bow with me. Father, that you would open your word. Lord, that you would use your word, the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, to draw us into a closer relationship with Christ. Father, and to focus us on you. Lord, that as we look at the words that you have have inspired, God, that we would be inspired to follow them, to take action and not to be complacent where we are. God, not to be complacent in our lives, 
but Lord, to go forward proclaiming the truth of a Gospel that is real and that has great power, that is dynamic, Father, that is efficacious. Draw us closer and closer and closer and closer to Yourself, Father. It's in Your name we pray and according to Your will we ask. Amen. Interesting text. Very interesting text. Understand too, this is uh, day two now. Uh, when we, and I know that we've skipped over the past couple uh, sermons, haven't really gone on in our exposition. Uh, the last service that we had was an ordination service. Or excuse me, it was uh, uh, Habakkuk. No, ordination service. And then before that, it was, we were out of Habakkuk. So we had some firsts in our church for a little while as we skipped out on our exposition of John. But now that we're punching back in, remember day one, who's, who's coming to try and jostle the cage of John the Baptist? All right, it's those who were sent by the Pharisees. Those, some scribes came with them. And they're wondering, who are you? Who's this bearded weirdo out in the middle of the desert with locusts and honey probably dripping out of his beard and he's wearing leather clothes? Probably didn't smell too good. Who is this guy? Why is he baptizing? Why is he doing the things that he's doing? And when, when he answers them, he says, look, I'm not who you think I am. Why? Because they think, well, he's, is he the prophet? Is he uh, Elijah? Or is he the Christ? And remember what we talked about. The Scriptures are very clear that the prophet and the Christ are the same. So they were so flawed in their biblical interpretation even of the Old Testament that they, did, they were basically saying ATM machine. So we know the acronym for ATM is Automated Teller Machine, but they were saying ATM machine, which in reality is someone saying Automated Teller Machine Machine. It doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. So he's saying, no, I'm not the prophet, which is the Messiah, and I'm not the Christ. Those are the same thing. Why are you asking me twice? Why are you asking me twice? So we have a group of people who's confused about who he is and who the coming Messiah will be. Why? Because they're flawed in their biblical interpretation. They're wrong. So let's, let's look at the text specifically. We'll start in the first verse, John 1.29. <clears throat> the next day... The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's our first point. The problem of sin is not something humanity can solve apart from the Christ of God. The problem of sin is not something humanity can solve apart from the Christ of God. Now, before we begin this journey together through this, this section of text here, allow me to quote R.C. Sproul regarding the world cosmos. So when we look back at verse 129, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the last word there in that text is the Greek word cosmos. So we have to have an understanding of that. R.C. Sproul, quote, Some have insisted that God sent Jesus to die in order to make salvation possible for everyone without exception. However, Jesus makes clear that the salvation of those whom the Father gives Him is not a mere possibility, but an absolute certainty. All of those whom God has chosen will come to Christ, who has laid down His life only for His sheep and not for those who have not been chosen from the foundation of the world. The point made by the world is that Christ's saving work is not limited to one time, one place, or one people, but applies to the elect from all over the world, no matter the era in which they live or their ethnicity. Moreover, in John, the world, here's quoted, often opposes God, so it's not always a positive affirmation of being in the world. Most of the time when we see the word world in the book of John, in reality, God's throwing darts at it. He's saying, no, this ain't good. 
this is not a good thing. These people are wicked and are fighting against me. Which, surprise, surprise, happened starting in Genesis 3. And happened all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And continued on through early church history. And surprise, surprise, here we are in 2021 and the world is still railing against God. That was a quick aside out of R.C. Sproul's quote there. So, moreover in John, the world often opposes God, so the wonder of God's love is displayed in the unworthiness of the object. Those who do not receive the remedy God has provided in Christ will perish. It remains true that anyone who believes in Christ will not die, but live in God's presence forever. End quote. R.C. Sproul. Think about that when we hear uh, words like the world in John 3.16. When we hear words like the world here in our sermon text in John 1.29. Guess what? It's not all good. It's not all good. It's not all dandy. It's not all fine. This isn't some affirmation of the fact that we're, we're good and we're upright on our own. No, it's quite the opposite. Why? Does hell exist? Yes, the Bible is very clear that hell exists. So if we believe in some funky flavor of of universalism here where ultimately Jesus saves everybody, absolutely everybody, then why did he waste time making hell for people who rebel against him? Universalism is not a thing. Annihilationalism is not a thing. Everybody getting to spend forever with God is not a thing. And that is why we must proclaim the gospel. It's absolutely imperative because if we don't, if we don't, that's like literally seeing someone, if there's a pool here and, and, and a child is drowning in it and we sit back and we've got all the implements of, of, of a modern day lifeguard here. Let's say I've got a jet ski with one of those cool little flotation devices you can throw at people, all sorts of that. And I look back and I say, you know what? All this is right here in order to save this child's life. But because I don't want to get wet in that pool, I'm going to watch him drown. I'm going to watch him perish in front of me. What would the world say about that lifeguard? Wicked, evil, immoral, terrible, false. False. But what would happen if the spiritual undertones of of that story, if that Christian said, you know what, I see that person drowning in their sin, and I can throw them a lifeline, I can share the gospel with them. Now, that might not always be a teaching and preaching moment. That might not be a, you know, standing on a soapbox in the middle of a subway somewhere. But by the actions of our life, when people start to see that, guess what? There's something different there. There's something different from, from what uh, I see happening in the world with this person who professes to be a Christian. And when they see those things, they start thinking, well, why is that person different? What makes them different from everybody else? Oh, wait, they love Jesus. But they're not just saying they love Jesus, they're walking it out like they actually do love Jesus, and for some reason they're not hypocrites. Maybe I should start listening. Maybe I should think about that. And, and I can assure you, I can assure you that if God so desires to draw that person unto himself, guess what's going to open up for you? An opportunity to present the gospel. Again, that doesn't mean a teaching and preaching session all the time. Sometimes it does. But, Sometimes it means literally crawling up onto the outskirts of an 18-wheeler in a parking lot of a big lots, and there's a UPS driver in there who's on his lunch break, and you're, you're like, hey, brother, I don't know why, but I felt like I should come over and say hey to you. How's it going? And when one of those weird moments happens and you start talking, and then all of a sudden God just immediately opens up an opportunity to present the gospel, 
Guess what you just did? You just took the life buoy and threw it out there and said, I'm not going to watch you drown. I'm not going to watch you drown. Now, I'm not saying it has to be like that with every single person you meet. All right? Because why? A lot of times, if, if, if you, specifically on airplanes, that's one that a lot of, uh, a lot of evangelists, they always want to try and push in their messages. Yeah, I've got to save 10 people on the flight from Los Angeles to Dallas. Right? No, God might not give you that opportunity. He might not, but he will give you an opportunity to present Jesus Christ in the way that you live at the very, very, very least. This is why Christ is so critical when we look at verse 129. This is why uh, he's so absolutely and vitally necessary, and this is why we can't swing out into eternity on our own good works, our own perceptions of uh, religion or Christianity. Uh, Why? Because we can't take our own sin away. Well, what did the verse say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'd like to see by a show of hands how many people can take their own sin away. I can't. I don't see any hands. I don't see any hands. Now, however, if Jesus was sitting amongst us, you know what Jesus would do? He'd raise his hand. He'd say, yep, I can take away every bit of those sins. Because why? I'm the Lamb of God. I'm the Son of God. We can't propitiate or satisfy God's wrath against sin on our own, short of spending forever and ever and ever and ever in hell. We can't put our sin into a bucket and hide it, and we cannot avoid it in any way whatsoever if we are of the flesh. Psalm 10, verses 3-4. through four. Psalm 10, 3-4. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, here it is, quote, there is no God, end quote. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Ah, that sounds familiar. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any That's a universal word. When we go back to the Hebrew, guess what that means? That doesn't mean just like the small group of people over there. It means everybody. And anybody who knows me, everybody is everybody plus three, right? So that's everybody. There's not anyone who has done good. No one who understands. No one who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3. That's, that's Romans 3, by the way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Logically, the progression is that we'll continue down the sewer of sin until we're bogged down in the filth and contamination of sin, unless, as the text denotes, Christ takes away that sin. Psalm 16, verse 2. I've said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good beside You. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. John 8, 24. John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Red letter words. Jesus speaking here. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now, tough, isn't it? And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and John the Baptist were not known for this, a Joel Osteen type message. 
They weren't known for the most uplifting and, and, and walking out feeling like you're a million dollar uh, message every time they preached or every time they taught publicly. In fact, what happened? John the Baptist got beheaded. Jesus, uh, you know, before they crucified him on a cross, they tried to stone him and throw him off a cliff. This is not a popular message. It was not a popular message 2,000 years ago, and it was not a popular message when the Israelites exited Egypt. Why? Shortly after they had seen God perform mighty miracles, right, destroy the most powerful human being on the planet at that time, what happened when Moses was hanging out with God on the top of Mount Sinai? A ton of them partied really hard and worshipped a golden calf. Does anybody know what, what Moses did after he came back down? Yeah, he ground that thing to powder. He threw it in the water and he made the Israelites drink it. That's what he did. He ground down that golden, that golden calf. He literally threw those gold flakes into the water and said, you're going to drink this up. Why? Because you're going to desecrate it when you expel it from your body. That's what we should feel about sin. We should hate it so much that we want to see it ground up and desecrated and destroyed. Look at uh, what Josiah did in 2 Kings chapter 22. Think about that for a, for a second. Let me dig up some bones of these old prophets who were pagan prophets, and then I'm going to either burn them or I'm going to ground them to powder. Bones. These guys were already dead, and he said, you know what? These people were such a, a, a disgusting group of idolaters that led our nation away from God. I'm going to desecrate their bones. How many people have you seen with that much zeal and vigor in their life towards the things of God and towards fighting sin and hating sin? I can tell you by experience, I have not seen many. I have not seen many. But, but, this is the Word of God. And if it's the Word of God, logically, His creatures, those who were made in His image, Imagio Dei, we should be following what He says to do and what He says to be. Look back with me to our primary text. This is John 1, 30-33. Verses 30-33. This is He, Jesus, on behalf of whom I said, after Me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for He existed before Me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I, John the Baptist, came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending on him out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Our second point, humanity cannot and will not recognize the Christ unless He is personally revealed by the Spirit of God. Humanity cannot and will not in any way whatsoever recognize the Christ unless He is personally revealed by the Spirit of God. Impossible. Why? Um, because the Bible says so. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has eyes, let him see. What does Ezekiel 36 and 37 denote? The fact that unless you have a heart that is literally flesh, it will be a rock to the things of God. 
But in Ezekiel 37, God literally says that I will give you, I, not you, not because you just decided to wake up one day and figure out that I'm God. I'm literally going to do open heart surgery on you. I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to bring you into life. I'm going to breathe life into you. Look back to Genesis chapter 1 with God breathing into Adam. Ah, there it is. Bringing a dead body into life. I'm going to breathe life into you. What am I going to do? I'm going to make you mine. I'm going to save you. I'm going to put my seal upon you. I'm going to put my name on you. I'm going to put, I'm going to put everything that I am in front of you. and I'm going to say, look at it. Because it's good. That is Christianity. That is conversion. That is God's work in salvation. Remember, we talked about this in Bible study. It's a monergistic work of God. Meaning that no one and nothing else, including myself, was involved in my own salvation. Think about it. What's the kid in the pool doing? He's drowning. He's sucking water into his lungs and he's flailing about. What Does the lifeguard come over there and say, hey young man, do you want to be saved? I'm going to sit back here until you tell me. No, what does the lifeguard do? responding because of the terrible malady of the person in the pool, dives in without a word from them. But here's the biblical version of that. You're dead and you're on the bottom of the pool. And then the lifeguard chooses to jump in. The lifeguard's Jesus. Breathes the Holy Spirit into you. Pulls you up out of the depths of that water, out of the depths of deadness. Puts you on dry land. Pumps all the filth out of you. And then breathes new life into you. That's the Bible. Do you see why all these stupid ploys of men, all these silly games they want to play, all these foolish tracks they want to make, what do they all involve? You, 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 we, 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 or I, I, I. Blasphemy. Jesus Christ. His work in your salvation is because of Him, by His own grace, in accordance with His own will. Ephesians chapter 2. Verbatim. Literally. Ephesians chapter 2. Why? You're dead. Lazarus, we talked about this before, dead for four days. What does he say? Lazarus, will you entertain the thought of coming out the tomb now that you've been dead for four days and your flesh is rotting? Your sister just said that your flesh is rotting and that your body stinks, but will you consider coming out of the tomb, please? Can we talk about this before you actually decide? Did, did, did that happen? No, it didn't happen. So what did he do? He rolled the tomb back. said, look, somebody roll the stone away. Then he shouts inside of it, Lazarus, come forth. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not some silly man-made game. Bringing dead people to life. Taking sin away from people. Giving them a reason to live. Remember, monergistically, Lazarus did not cooperate there. He came alive. But after he came alive, what happened? Yeah, Jesus, I'm going to keep following you. We're good. Right? That's what happens in Christianity. But it's the exact opposite way with most of the world. What does the world say? Well, you've got to be like this. You've got to act like this or talk like this before Jesus Christ Himself can even save you. Why? Because our world, specifically American Christianity, has made the gospel message into this. Hey, you've got a pretty good life. 
got a good 401k, got a, a nice car, you've got 2.4 kids, and you've got uh, you know, this, that, and the other. All you need now is to sprinkle a little bit of Christ on top of all the good things in your life, and then it's all going to be okay. That is pagan babble. That's what that is. That is filth and trash because you will not add in any way whatsoever to the Christ. You won't. You can't. Jesus agrees. He's banging in the pipes right now. Okay, I can hear him back there. Humanity cannot and will not recognize the Christ unless He's personally revealed by the Spirit of God. So some have argued throughout Christian history, throughout humanity, that we have the ability now to lay hold of these certain spiritual truths and then choose to obey them and follow them before God's done any work on our heart. I default to the Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But a natural man, so understand that this would not be a Christian, this would not be someone who's born again, this would not be a follower of Christ, this is a normal run-of-the-mill human being, before Christ, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him. And, here it is, he cannot understand them. What does that mean? It's impossible for him to understand them. He does not have the ability to understand them. He cannot lay his hand to the latch of the door to open the door and even see the truth of them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. Ah, there it is. Have to have the Spirit of God in order to see spiritual things, which reminds me of a couple more verses. John 3.3. 3. This is Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus speaking to him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, there it is. So when we talked about, we've talked about this verse a little in depth uh, in the past. Um, the semantic domain, so every possible translation in Greek of the word for see here is see. That's all, that's all we're going to get. Sight, see, vision, that's about it. All right? What does that mean? That means that he's not even talking about understanding. He's talking about even being able to put your eyes on it. You cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot even see the things of God. You cannot even see truly the Christ unless you are born again. What do most tracts say? The exact opposite of that. The exact opposite. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-5. Hmm. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Listen to the causation here. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Let's, uh, let's look at that. According to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the, the physical principle is that you cannot be alive if you're dead. I know that's a hard one to grasp. I know it's difficult. All right? but, but if you're dead, you're not alive. John has seen many many dead animals on the side of the road, and no matter how badly John wants to bring them back from death, even with his surgical prowess, he would be unable to do so. Why? Because they're dead. That raccoon's not coming back, even if John wants it to. Breathe, little man, breathe, right? It's not going to happen. He just got hit by an 18-wheeler. It's not going to happen. Sin brings death. It's the same principle. No, no, no physical manipulation by man or even yourself on your own self is going to free you or rid you of the sin problem, of the curse of sin. Some people think that um, you're not a sinner until you actually start sinning. It's funny because Romans 5 says the exact opposite. It says that you're a sinner before you're born. Why? You've inherited sin through the bloodline of Adam. I'll go back a little bit further. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the, the Michael Jordan of, of Judaism back in the Old Testament. Let's talk about uh, David, King David, right? What did he say about his own conception? In sin did my mother conceive me. Hmm. It changes things, doesn't it? Because now we have a problem before we draw our first breath. Now we're held accountable literally before we draw our first breath because guess what? There's death there. Let me paint it this way. Uh, let, let's, let's prove that pr- principle there in Romans chapter 5. If I have a well, if I have a well that's a trillion miles deep and it's full of the most beautiful, pure, pristine, clear, purified, amazing water, Trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of gallons of it. If I take one drop of poison, my little dropper, and I go bloop, and I put that poison in that well, every single bucket that I pour, that I pull out of that well for all of eternity from that point forward will have nothing but poison and water in it. It's tainted. It's tainted. It's the same thing with humanity. We're born in sin. We're born of Adam. Again, going back to why Jesus skipped out on the bloodline of Adam. He had no physical father. Which means that He did not inherit sin. Which means that He could start life and live life from the very beginning free of the contamination of sin. That's a big deal. Why? Because He propitiated the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What kind of sacrifice did you put up in the Old Testament if you uh, wanted, uh, let's say, um, to have that sin covered? Was it a really deformed, kind of lame-looking, spotted, blemished animal? No. It was perfect, pure, and undefiled. That was what you killed. That's what you put up on the altar. That's Jesus Christ. Same exact thing. You can't disentangle yourself from sin apart from Christ because you're dead without Him. 
This is why rebirth is necessary to understanding the gospel. You cannot grasp it. Understand, you can't grasp the gospel. You can't grasp the Christ, though you profess it, if you're not changed by the Holy Spirit. You can't grasp it, though you read it, if you're not changed by the Holy Spirit. You can't grasp it, though you attend a church faithfully, if you're not changed by the Holy Spirit. You can't enjoy the glorious freedom found in Christ, the removal of the filth of sin from your body of flesh, if you're not born again. You can't. You can't. It's impossible. So what's the command? Cry out to God. Cry out to God. Call for others to cry out to God. Call out for those who have left this assembly or other assemblies, other churches, and cry out that they would repent of their sins and believe the Christ, or that they would repent from their sin if they're truly Christians. Why? That's what the Bible says to do. You want, you want to, the, I have been accused so often of being unloving, unkind, and using language that is too harsh. Let's look at Paul for, for a second. Here's what happened when people were in open rebellion sin in churches. Let's think of specifically Hymenaeus and Alexander. What happened with those guys? Paul literally said these people who have continued on in blatant disregard for the Word of God, those people who continue to defy my statutes and principles for how to operate within the church because guess what? God said do these things. Here's Paul's exact wording. Quote, I have handed them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh that they may learn not to blaspheme. End quote. Now there's some words that are sharp, cutting, and hard. Let's get a little more difficult there. Galatians chapter 1. If anyone brings to you a gospel counter to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So let me explain the word there, accursed. The Greek word there, Maranatha, uh, that's as close as Paul can possibly get to literally cussing in a vulgar sense and still be upright. That's the language that he just employed for those people who distort the gospel or abuse the gospel. But here's the cool thing. He says it again in the matter of two verses. As I said to you before, so I say now again, if anyone brings you a gospel counter to the one you've received, even if it's me, even if it's an angel of light, even if it's someone who looks holy and pious, they are to be accursed. Galatians chapter 1, it starts the letter. This thing's real. And that's one of the things that just boggles my mind is that people will assert that the Bible is true, it's real, it's infallible, it's inerrant. But guess what word? They want to grab and punt like a football. It's authoritative. That's the, that's, the, that's the battle that I see being fought right now in evangelicalism. That's the battle I've seen fought in this church. That's the battle I've seen fought uh, when we deal with things on the internet with yahoos who don't love God. What is it? Oh yeah, well, you know, I'm going to use your own Bible against you, quote some verse out of context that has absolutely nothing to do with the subject at hand, but then I'm not going to obey the 4,000 other things that God said I should do, be, or act like. You hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Think about that for a second. This is really simple. Christianity is so incredibly simple, but it's difficult. Why? Because people will come against you with the fierceness of an animal. Jason laughs. I said it when I showed up day one, first meeting we had. I said, what's going to happen? 
He'll, he'll back me up on this. He's actually got video evidence of even before I came out here. I said, what's going to happen when I start teaching and preaching the gospel and people come unglued? That was literally almost a direct question. What's going to happen when people start coming apart when I actually preach and teach the gospel? Now, here's what I chose to do out of love and kindness. Preach out of the book of James. I preached out of the book of James. And the, the truth of the book of James was far too heavy a burden to bear for many. And that is light stuff if we hold that against the Gospels. Honestly, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Or the book of John. That was some pretty light-hearted stuff. This, hey, this is what Christians do. This is how you should be. This is how the church should go. Okay, no problem. There's two possibilities. I've said this before from the pulpit. Two possibilities when people sit under the repeated teaching and preaching of the true gospel. There's only two. One, they will repent of their sins and be converted. Or two, they will turn against it with the fierceness of an animal. Same thing happened in Jesus' day. Same thing happened with the disciples of Jesus. Same thing happened with the apostles of Jesus. What did Stephen get his head crushed in for with rocks? Oh, that Jesus is Lord and I condensed the Old Testament into about a paragraph in the New Testament. That's what he did. That's what, that was his crime, was that he professed that Jesus was Lord and then he basically gave a really accurate, condensed, cliff note version of the Israelites and the Exodus. That was awful. What did they do? They gnashed their teeth at him. That's what the biblical account says. They turned into animals and wanted to kill him. Perhaps, perhaps, if it is the will of God, He will grant those people repentance. Perhaps. Perhaps He will grant them faith unto salvation. Why? Because where do repentance and faith actually come from? God. God. The biblical account is very clear that they come from God. Why? You can have an earthly sorrow that leads to an earthly repentance, a worldly repentance, or you can have a godly sorrow, which is a godly gift. God's agreeing right now on the pipes right now, that leads to life, right? There's only two options. So one's going to come from the world, one's going to come from God. Guess what you're not going to muster up? The godly one on your own. It's a gift of God. Interestingly, this is a little bit of a side note. There's a great possibility that John and Jesus knew each other before the moment of baptism. Why? Uh, they were cousins. But if we look back at our text, it says, I did not recognize him. What's John saying? I didn't recognize him ultimately as being the Christ or being the Messiah. But what did God say? Hey, hey, John the Baptist, here's how you're going to recognize when you see the Spirit descending on my anointed one, the Christ, the true prophet of Israel, the true king of Israel, the true priest of Israel, when you see it descending on him, that's the one. John the Baptist said, okay, all right, cool, yep, no problem, got it, God, no problem. And so he sees possibly his cousin come, well, yeah, was my cousin, cool guy, like him, you know, son of Mary, no big deal. But all of a sudden he baptizes this guy and the, what, the Spirit comes down on him? Oh boy, now I know, now I understand. Look at, look at John 1.33. I did not recognize him, 
But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the parallel account. John the Baptist saw, as the parallel account states, in Matthew 3, 16-17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And this is also a beautiful picture of the Trinity. Think about that in the background. Jesus came immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There's the litmus test that God said would happen. John the Baptist was the guy who actually baptized him and watched all this happen. So let's see what it says in the continuance of our text. John 1.34. John 1.34. I, John the Baptist, myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Point three, closing point. The Lamb of God was accurately seen and proclaimed by the baptizer. Repent and believe. The Lamb of God was accurately seen and proclaimed by the baptizer. Repent and believe. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a perfect testimony here. It's a perfect, infallible, and perfectly sure testimony of Jesus Christ. We have a a slam dunk, an air ball, a no-brainer. In the military, we would say a a beach ball with a tennis racket. There's no way you're going to miss that one. There's absolutely no way that you're going to miss it. This testimony is sure. It's in stone. Is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Virgin Mary, the one who was fathered by the Holy Spirit of God, He is the Son of God. It's Him. He's the, he's the, true, the, true, the true leader of the people out of the bondage of slavery into the promised land. Uh, Moses... He's the true king who fights on behalf of his people and liberates them from the slavery of a a wicked and evil empire. The true David. It's him. It's him. What what did he say in uh, Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus? it, It says literally that Jesus worked his way through the Old Testament and he explained to the guys who were walking with him all the things that were about him. Guess what was not yet written then? Any singular portion of the New Testament. So Jesus used the entirety of the Old Testament to prove the fact that he was in the Old Testament, that he is God, and that he fulfilled everything, which is everything plus three. Everything. Do you believe him? Christians, do you, do you believe him? I do. Critical question, non-Christians, for those who may be listening, do you believe Him? For those who don't, my heart breaks for you because you don't realize the reality of eternity. You don't realize the beauty of Christ and the gloriousness of the Father. You don't feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit or of the forgiveness of sin. If I could present Christ in a way as to make Him more attractive to you, I would strive to do it. I I would strive to do that. But I know not the words to paint the picture that is most accurate of His tenderness, His kindness, His mercy, and His love. 
as God himself has already chosen the words to express the Christ and to put him forward as the object of our faith, the adoration, uh, the, the thing that we should most be adoring in our lives. The Christ, the Messiah, the Holy Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's it. It's him. I can't figure out how to explain to him, or uh, how, how to explain him, Jesus Christ. I don't know how to do that in any way whatsoever, uh, in regards to His wonder and His majesty and His sovereignty and His lordship over everything that's been created in a way that we would not just simply try and compare Him to some earthly power. He is incomprehensibly sovereign. He rules over atoms and molecules and subatomic particles. And not one in the universe in any way whatsoever is outside of the realm of his control or direction. He's made everything. He's the Lord over everything. So that's why when I hear pastors or preachers or evangelists or missionaries say, all you need to do is just make Jesus the Lord over your life, I want to grab them, not by the neck, but by the shoulders, and shake them vigorously. And say, sir, do you not understand how sovereign he is? He does not need your assent to be the Lord over your life. He is the Lord over your life. Whether you love him, you praise him, you worship him, or you hate him, you curse him, you curse him and you turn away from him. He is the Lord over your life. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. I fall miserably short in heralding Him in a way that does Him justice. Absolutely miserably short. And I am laid low as I see my own sin and my failures in the glorious light of Jesus Christ in the truth of the Gospel. But, here is the beauty of Christ. It's not about me. Here's the beauty of Christ. It is not about you. It is about Christ. What I would ask you is, my fellow Christians, those who have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, to say with me, I myself have been changed, and I testify that this Jesus of the Bible, He's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There is forgiveness of sin, there is mercy, there is compassion, and perfect gentleness in Christ. I pray that God would do a mighty work in this community and that we would see people change. That we would see people see the beauty of Christ. That we would see people move away from the faults they find in the messenger or the messengers. And just simply look at Christ. So few people actually understand the words amazing grace. So few people. As a pagan, I sang that for 30 years of my life and it meant nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. And then God ripped out my heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in that could actually respond to Him. And the first time I sang Amazing Grace, I wept because I finally understood what it meant. 
Let them see Christ in you. Psalm 38, verse 4. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man, the woman, or the child who takes refuge in him. Bow with me. God, point us to Christ. God, show us the Lamb of God. Show us the Lamb who has been slain. God, who poured out His blood that we might have forgiveness of sin. God, what beautiful imagery we see of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament with the Passover. And the Lamb was killed and the blood was put over the figurative entrance of the home, the doorposts and the lintel, the way in and the way out, which spiritually corresponds to hearts. When that blood was applied in the doorposts and the lintel, of those homes, your death, your wrath, your hatred of sin would pass over that dwelling and move on. Help us to see the beautiful imagery of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and that we can enter into Your presence by nothing other and no one other than He. Put that on our hearts, put that on our minds, and drive us forward in such a way as to do things, God, that you have called us to do, not for our own glory, not for our own uh, accolades, God, but, but let us fade into the background, let us decrease, let Christ increase. And do a work here, Father. Lord God, you are everything. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you for the gift, Lord of Christ. It is in your name we pray, and according to your will we ask. Amen. This is Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Happy Lord's Day.